Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1979 Tarkovsky film Stalker. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing great, Sam. Barrett, this is one of your favorite movies, right? That's right. This is a, this is one of the. I think this rounds out my top ten. Okay. Is this is so? Is this? Do you think this is Tarkovsky's greatest movie in your mind? That's a really good question. Um, I actually ran across uh, an interview with Tarkovsky. I'm not sure what year the interview was was given, but um, it's part of a documentary film that his son made in 2019. Uh, and Tarkovsky called Stalker his most successful film, which is, and as I said, I don't know if he had made Nostalgia or The Sacrifice at that point, but at any rate, he called it his most successful film. Um, so you, you pose a different question for me. Is it his, his, his greatest film? Um, you know, I, I'm still in process with Tarkovsky and trying to decide which of his films I think is his greatest. And so one way I might want to think about it is which of his films do I want to return to more often? Um, and right now I would say that is in fact Stalker. Okay. Um, even though I love Andrei Rubloff and, uh, and I love Mirror, for example, uh, and The Sacrifice, um, this is the one where, yeah, I just, there's so much, there's so much going on in this film and it, there's so much to think about with this film. I, I really love it. Well, it's interesting that you say, uh, which film would you want to like go back to or return to? Because there's multiple ways you can return to a film like this. That might mean I want to sit and watch it again. It also might be, it just, I just can't get this out of my head. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a really great, uh, I watched most of the Criterion extras on this because I was really interested in what people had to say. Um, and, and one of the, the I can't think of his name, one of the, the critics or scholars who, who had a, about a 20 minute video about the movie talked about how like all, all cinema, even bad cinema, like changes or transforms your view of the world and the question is how long does it change it for this is like a really bad movie you know for the first three seconds you step away from the movie you are you are changed and then it sort of goes away and he says and then truly great movies kind of never you kind of never get away from them and they actually alter the world around you um and uh i think this movie has that power i, I i'm gonna just i'm gonna just say right now barrett We've watched a number of movies, way more than 10 uh, in this podcast series, where I would say, okay, this one's in the conversation for the 10 greatest movies of all time. Stalker walked right into that for me. I This movie blew me away. Um, and that didn't mean I always enjoyed watching it, but, and I, and, and I felt so much better reading about Tarkovsky afterwards with this movie, where I feel like all of my both... Um, intellectual but also physical reactions to this movie were kind of what he was going for i mean it sounds weird to be like i think this is one of the greatest movies ever made i was like bored and falling asleep during it and then i realized like he kind of wanted that he wanted me to fight through you know and he even have has his characters fall asleep partway through the movie you know that, that there is that and then it's like you get out on the other end and and it it kind of blew me away that he wanted this to be work is really yeah. interesting yeah, it is, that is very interesting. The uh, the critic you're referring to is Jeff Dyer, um, and uh, he wrote a very good book about about soccer as well, just called called Zone. Um, yeah, so I, I I do love the fact that even those who really like this movie, like Jeff Dyer and Ryan Johnson, has a short interview on the Criterion Channel as well. 
everybody acknowledges that there's points at which it's boring. Um, and it's, you know, we've talked a little bit about slow cinema. So the film is 163 minutes and it has 142 shots. So that means that the average shot is more than a minute. And of course, that's kind of Tarkovsky is known for these long, slow shots. So there's a there's a great story where, you know, Tarkovsky made, uh, I think Stalker was the last film he made uh, under the auspices of the Russian government. And after this, he goes to the West and makes his films uh, in the West. But anyway, so he screened the film uh, for the government group, the State Committee for Cinematography. Uh, and they said to him that the film should be faster, more dynamic. And Tarkovsky says uh, the film needs to be slower and duller at the start. So the viewers who walked into the wrong theater have time to leave before the main action starts. I, mean, I, I love that, right? It's the idea like, okay, if you're bored now after the first five to 10 minutes, then you better leave because it's going to be a lot of this. Now, there's moments of action, of course, but what I love about that opening shot is not only the slow tracking shot that goes into the bedroom, but the way the characters on the bed, they're like a freeze. You know, it's like you're looking at a relief of, of sculptured characters. And, and then it's like they slowly come to life. I just love that moment. Um, one other thing I have to say, I got to get this quote in from Tarkovsky. Um, he says, uh, I'm only interested in talking about his films. I'm only interested in the views of two people. One is called Brisson and one called Bergman. Uh, and of course, he he worshipped he worshipped Bergman, and we may have talked about that when we talked about the sacrifice. So yeah, um, Tarkovsky knows exactly what he's doing in terms of how he paces this film. Yeah, um, I found it interesting though as I went back a second time, and I didn't get a chance because this is a very long movie. I didn't get a chance to rewatch this a full second time, but when I did turn it back on and I would jump to certain scenes, I found myself watching far much far more than I thought I was going to, because once you've been through it, I think it draws you in, in a different way. And it's like, I bet the second time through, I wouldn't feel as much like this is boring. And I would feel more mm -hmm. like, Oh, I'm kind of interested in why he's sitting here, why we're doing this. The other interesting thing, you talked about the number of minutes and the number of shots. I also went back and pulled the script for this. Cause I wanted to reread parts of it. The script for a, 163 minute movie is 37 pages <laughs> and that's a generous 37 it's probably more like 25 there is not a lot said but then there is so much said when words are used and so much said when words are not used um so this is a, a just a really fascinating piece um you're right we have done another another tarkovsky movie we did the sacrifice I think this might be the first time I went back last night and listened to our episode on that because I was curious what we talked about with Tarkovsky and if I could see reflections of that in this. And it was really interesting. I actually encouraged somebody if you if you sat down and watched Stalker, um, especially if you watch Stalker and the Sacrifice, uh, I think that's a really interesting episode to listen to as well, because I feel like that was illuminating to this movie. Uh, Barrett, I, I I didn't front load this question, but when did you first see this movie? What is your history with with Stalker specifically? Yeah, I, I'm tr I, I'm trying to remember um, how I even started with Tarkovsky, um, and, and we may have talked about this when we talked about the sacrifice. Um, so I I know that my first encounter with Tarkovsky was actually in in a theater. Um, the old Oak Street Cinema showed uh, Andrei Rubilov, and somehow I guess I'd read about it. So then after that. Um, uh, Stalker became available on the Criterion channel. I think that's when I first watched it. So it's probably been about, um, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years or so. 
uh, and it would have been, uh, I, I did a little Tarkovsky. I got into Tarkovsky a little bit. I did Andre Rubloff, I did Ivan's Childhood. I did Solaris, uh, and then and then I did Stalker. So it's probably been within certainly less than ten years ago. Do you remember your first uh, responses to this movie? I was fascinated. I I, I I was yeah, I was enthralled, and uh, it was this. It was the same experience. It was the same thing we talked about a few minutes ago. It's like I was thinking, well, there's some ways in which it's boring, but it's mostly fascinating to look at, to listen to, to think about. So yeah, it it. It drew me, and it kind of gets back to your first question, um, Sam. I think from that moment, that became my favorite Tarkovsky. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. You you mentioned that that Ryan Johnson um, little interview on Criterion is really short, but he said one thing that uh, I feel like really touches on this movie. He talks about he describes Tarkovsky's uh, directorial style as kind of leaning back. And he says Mm -hmm. he leans back, which causes you to lean in. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's like that. And I, what's funny is I know that he doesn't necessarily mean that physically, but I think about when I watched this movie, the physical posture I took actually was often leaning towards the screen because it's, there's something that the way he shoots, the way he often will shoot things, um, at a distance, um, on in some of these long shots makes it it draws me in and then then we'll also get these like incredible close-ups of the heads of these people um you know as well but there there is something that that because there is this kind of distance that the and, and, and quietness that this movie has that 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 actually functions to draw me in as i watch it you know i i'm gonna i'm gonna posit sam that as i think about what makes movie watching um significant, important, valuable, worthwhile to me. I think it's the notion that I want, I want some everything, I want everything I watch to engage me in one way or another um, and engage me and also to a certain degree challenge me. And so I'm going to posit that I, I think every good movie poses some kind of challenge to, to the viewer, but movies challenge in different ways. So I get I get very bored with a movie that doesn't really challenge me, a movie that just kind of spoon feeds me, uh, and and that's okay. And that's but that to me that's the that's the entirely entertainment side. And then I would say that Tarkovsky's films and slow cinema in general they're they're probably at the other almost extreme. Um, but I think people have to go into a film like this accepting the idea that this this is something where the director wants you to do a certain amount of work and if you put the work in which some people may sound like a very counterintuitive way to think about about watching a film but if you put the work into it you will get um you will get a lot out out of it um so to me that's you know and, and it's not everybody's it's not everybody's cup of tea um but i think that once you once you accept that idea that you are um, just to, just as when you read a good book, you have to be an active reader. You have to be an active viewer for a film like this. Well, it's interesting because we've talked a lot about movies that teach you how to watch them. And, you know, thinking about Tarkovsky's quote, even about the beginning of this movie, I mean, that is a version of that saying, like, I am going to I am going to prepare you for where we're headed. So he, we are being prepared for the zone by the beginning of this movie. Now, it's interesting you talk about like uh this movie taking some degree of work uh at the same time i will say if you if you're listening to this and you haven't seen this movie this is the this is my third tarkovsky movie so i watched the sacrifice with you i actually have seen nostalgia and really liked that movie 
oddly, I think this is the most accessible of the movies that I've seen in certain ways, which uh, which seems weird because this movie is in lots of ways not the kind of thing you would use that word for. But I, I say that in that sometimes we'll watch a film, and I think The Sacrifice was a little bit like this, Nostalgia was a little bit like this, where I got to the end and I thought, this was really great. I need to go read a bunch more because I need to kind of make sense out of what I saw. And I, I want to like join into a, I either want to have a film discussion with somebody or I want to like read other, read, read sort of reviewers or critics talking about this as a way to have a kind of virtual discussion. This one, I got to the end and it, there's a million questions I have, but I also didn't feel like I don't quite understand what happened. Like, like, and even in terms of the questions, I got to that final scene with uh, Stalker and his wife talking, and then Stalker's wife talking, and then Stalker's child, and I felt like, oh, I see what I know what you're up to. Like, 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 to, so to that degree, it felt accessible. Sometimes movies that we've watched here that I love, my first time through, I'm just kind of in the best way, gleefully baffled. Like, <laughs> huh okay, I'd really need to process this. This one didn't feel, I didn't feel that kind of distance. I felt like as I was watching it, I somehow felt tapped into what he was doing. Um, and maybe that's just that this one is made for somebody like me. But but even in the parts where I felt like like this is this kind of dull tedium, I felt like I get what you're doing and I get some of the ideas you're playing with well before we get to the payoff of those ideas. So I felt like I was with him a lot more. And that that made, for me at least, made this, even the watching of this this movie really, really interesting. Because I didn't, I didn't feel like he's so far out ahead of me that I'm not sure what, what, what we're up to. Uh, yeah. And I really liked that. Yeah, I think in some ways, maybe, Sam, you were primed by the sacrifice and nostalgia. For <laughs> that <this film>. could be. Because <laughs> if somebody said to me, you know, what, what accessible... Uh, Tarkovsky film would you start with? Well, I mean, I could send you all the way back to Ivan's Childhood, which is a very realist film. Uh, if I showed you Ivan's Childhood and said, who do you think made this? You would not say Tarkovsky. Um, but if I, if I were to send you to the first kind of Tarkovskyan film, I would probably send somebody to Andrei Rublev. Um, it's very long, uh, but it's very narrative. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty straightforward historic, uh, kind of historical drama. Um, yeah. So we watched this um, to, you know, in some ways we're watching this in conversation with 2001 and, and both Solaris and this are, you know, kind of Tarkovsky's response to, among other things, his response to 2001, um, a film he didn't particularly like. Uh, I'm curious your thoughts. Um, what did he not like about 2001 and how is this film a response? Okay, well, the first thing I have to tell you is that Tarkovsky has this reputation. Um, if you read about Tarkovsky speaking at conferences or if you read his book, Sculpting in Time, Tarkovsky uh, is rather autocratic. Uh, Tarkovsky has very clear views on things, and he was co often considered something of a scold, you know, in terms of telling people they weren't making films right. Uh, so I have to preface it by saying that Tarkovsky has very strong, uh, somewhat sure. flexible opinions. Um, so, yeah. And, and I also have to tell you that um, I stumbled on a wonderful site yesterday uh, in which somebody has compiled uh, a list of Stanley Kubrick's 97, 93 favorite films uh, based on a bunch of different interviews that Kubrick did. 
It's not like he ever sat down and compiled a grand list, but this is just kind of putting it together. Two of the films on that list are Solaris and The Sacrifice. So uh, Kubrick did not return the disfavorite, so to speak. Yeah, so here's what Tarkovsky didn't like. He said, um, he says it's a phony film. 2001 is a phony film uh, because it's too, there's too much for him. There's too much fakery. He says, um, because it's so, uh, it's so excessive in its technological invention that he, he doesn't feel that it has emotional truth. So uh, he wants, he wants it, he wants, if you create an exotic environment, he says it may be exotic, but it has to be real. It has to be every, every day. Um, it's, 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 it's real psychologically. Um, and so he, say, he says, uh, here's his direct quote, that's why a detailed examination of the technological processes of the future transforms the emotional foundation of a film as a work of art into a lifeless schema with only pretensions to truth. So that's how he feels about 2000, 2001, a lifeless schema with only pretensions to truth. So there you go. So how do you see this as a, a corrective to that? Well, um, I, yeah, well, certainly it's a corrective in terms of um, if you don't really feel that the characters in 2001 have much of an interior life or that um, Kubrick isn't much interested in them as individuals, uh, Tarkovsky certainly uh, works against that. You know, not only is Stalker a fully realized character, but even, even writer and professor, despite the fact that they're given these sort of... Um, you know, these uh, generic names, uh, representative names, they're very individualized. Um, they have a very interesting internal life. They get these long monologues. They have different worldviews. So so I think that that's one, that's one very significant difference. So Tarkovsky is very interested in the individual stories of these, of these characters. They're not just representatives or archetypes. And then secondly, you know, the zone is, I mean, even though, you know, we're told that it's this place where the laws of physics somehow uh, are violated and, and strange things happen. But, you know, we know we know that we're in Estonia. Uh, you know, it's it, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a um, an environment that we can relate to. And, you know, Tarkovsky is a realist. Uh, and so he he is. That's one reason why he calls his work sculpting in time. Time and space are the basic are the basic fabric that he's working with. And so he's not constructing his own space. He's actually dealing in, in real literal space. So that's another way, which it's very kind of a real you know, response to 2001. It's interesting when you think about the characters, because when, when the movie started and you're told, because even the writer's about to say his name and stalker just says, you are writer. Yes. He is professor. And it's, it's sort of like you get this feeling it's forcing archetypes onto people like that that that's what it's going to do and you're like okay i get it here is the person who represents science here's the person who represents art and then as the movie unfolds it unpacks those people and you see them uh as for one thing not fully representing those things or re representing sort of skewed versions of those those things which they are potentially supposed to be you know allegories for and then we also learn like specific pieces about their life which shape their motivations particularly the professor's motivations when he when he's on that phone call you're, you're realizing like 
why are you here? And, 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 and even the reason you say you're here, is that really why you're here? Or is it about this, you know, personal affront that, that you had faced? So I found that really interesting how he, he builds it like their archetypes and then, and then undercuts that. Um, one of the things that, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I would also, I also want to say too, in terms of the film as a response to 2001, um, you know, it, it's, the zone is, is in a sense, Tarkovsky's monolith. Uh, I mean, it doesn't operate like the monolith, but it, it, it raises the same kinds of questions that the monolith raises. Nobody knows where, where the zone came from. Nobody is even sure exactly what it is. Is it a meteorite? Is it an invasion? Um, you know, so so it has this kind of this kind of um, uh, mysterious quality, and you've also alluded to some other mysteries as well. So there's a sense in which he and Kubrick are on the same page in terms of wanting to engage us, in terms of offering us with a kind of a mystery. The difference is, of course, ultimately there is an explanation behind the monolith, and there isn't necessarily an explanation behind the zone, because where or, or how the zone came about is not nearly as important as what actually happens in the zone. I'm glad you brought that up, because I, as I was preparing for this, I was really trying to search out, like, okay, what what is the thing that, that Tarkovsky wants to do here? Um, and one of the things I read this week, uh, I sat down and read the novel Roadside Picnic. Have you ever mm -hmm. read this? I have not read that. No, I know it's it, it, it's worth as a fan of Stalker. It's worth reading, if only to say uh, this is a fascinating work of adaptation because uh, Tarkovsky takes certain things from the book, but at the same time seems wildly uninterested in the book. <laughs> um, so, so like, like. Uh, this is written by the these two uh, uh, Strugatsky brothers who also write the screenplay for this, but I don't think their screenplay ends up being what we see <laughs> because of the way this movie is remade and remade. Um, it's a pretty good book. Mm -hmm. Not great, but it, it, it's interesting. Um, so the book contains some things that that Tarkovsky holds on to sort of sort of this like notion of the zone um, and uh in the book it's it's more explicit that it is uh it is something about an alien visit or the meteorite so we get that language at the beginning that sort of postscript to this movie uh the of the you know that we read of like some nobel laureate talking about it and then it's like that kind of goes away he like says okay i'm going to acknowledge that but we're not going to spend time thinking about that too much so he also takes the idea of of a stalker somebody who can lead you into this zone now in the book the stalkers are uh people who go into the zone to collect alien artifacts and sell them on the outside like on the black market because they seem to have some sort of value or power to them Hmm. Um, and then there is in the last chapter of this of the book, there is this sense that there is this object that will fulfill your desires. Mm -hmm. Now that's just a that's just like part of the book. And clearly Tarkovsky's interested in the zone. He's interested in the in exploring what a stalker would be like, and he's interested in this idea of having your dreams fulfilled. Now, the most interesting part of the book is something that Tarkovsky doesn't doesn't use explicitly but maybe implicitly in this film and it's where the title roadside picnic comes from mm -hmm. the one of the they're, they're speculating about some characters speculating about the zone and one of them you know is thinking about these alien artifacts from this visit and you know everybody's trying to apply this meaning to them and this made me think of the monolith a lot 
Like, you know, in, in 2001, the monolith is clearly placed there with intention and it's sort of this communication beacon and it uh, portends these ev- sort of evolutions in humanity. And the person in the, the character in the book says, well, what if the, this alien visit was just them coming and these are things they happen to even accidentally leave behind as if we went on a roadside picnic and we ate lunch and then left and we would leave accidentally things behind, you know, like uh, stems from cherries or a little bit of oil that drips from our car or, you know, uh, an empty soda can. And then all the animals who come around it, there's these lower intelligences, you know, may try to like make sense out of these things as some gift from these higher things. And it's like, maybe it's just this <laughs> stuff that's left over, which is such an interesting idea. And Tarkovsky doesn't explicitly do that. But when you think about the zone, whenever you, he shows the water and there's all these like objects in the water too. And it's like, as a viewer, you're thinking, is this, is there some greater meaning I'm supposed to puzzle together? Or are these just the leftover pieces of what used to be here. And so it's, I find that stuff or, or are they leftover pieces from other people who have gone on these journeys, which we see later, clearly uh, the professor and the writer have each left some things behind in the water as well. Mm-hmm. So I find like that book is really interesting and Tarkovsky is mostly not interested in it except for a couple pieces. Yeah. That's a real, that's really interesting, Sam, because, you know, we talked about, um, you know, 2001 is kind of an active adaptation. It's kind of an act of, you know, dual creation. And so, yeah, it's interesting that Tarkovsky is kind of doing the same thing here. And it's it's always interesting to me when we talk about adaptation, what does it actually mean to adapt one, uh, one, one uh, work of art into, into another? And so it's clear that, as you said, that Tarkovsky picks up on these particular ideas that kind of serve his purposes in thinking about what it means to go into the, into this world. I don't know if, uh, I don't know if the novel has any of the um, spiritual resonances that this Not really. I mean, this is, this is one of Tarkovsky's more uh, explicitly uh, Christian films uh, in a lot of respects. Um, so you can, you can see, I mean, and I know that he transforms the character of Stalker into a much more sympathetic character than the Stalkers are in, uh, in, in the novel. Yeah, I mean, there is a degree in the novel of the our, our central stalker who um, who has a name in this book. Stalker is just a job. It's not like a identity yeah. in that same way. Where where at the very end, as he's approaching the golden orb, which makes your wishes come true, like there is this sense of he's trying to think of what like a higher thing is that you could wish for. But but it it strips away the 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 stuff that's the real meat of this movie is not coming from that book. It's like it's like this movie is Tarkovsky thinking about the book and thinking yes. like, well, what's interesting about this? And let's make a movie about my thoughts about this book rather than let's make this book. So uh, one of the first things you notice as this movie starts is uh, you're in this sepia toned mm-hmm. world. Uh, that's maybe not the best way to talk about it, but I'm not sure how else I would describe yeah. that. It's definitely not black and white, but it's this like brown sepia tone. Yeah. And we see Stalker and his family. And you talked about that shot and the train comes by and we see the glass moving on the table presumably because it's being shaken by the train but then at the end we're mm-hmm. left to ask some questions about that um uh we go to the bar and we meet our we meet our characters as we said they're kind of these archetypes i also wondered about to what degree uh are the stalker the writer and the professor also aspects of tarkovsky 
Oh, that's really, yeah, that's, that's a really interesting point. Um, certainly, you know, if you read what Tarkovsky says about being an artist, uh, certainly right. much of what the writer says is, yeah, he's channeling a lot of himself in, in, in the, in the writer. Um, it's interesting to speculate how much of, of, of Tarkovsky is in the professor. In some ways, the professor is kind of a, he's kind of an anti-Tarkovsky. And you, I think you could see him as maybe Tarkovsky's effort to be sympathetic to the scientific point of view, to try to think about what it would mean to look at the world kind of scientifically. Also, in terms of, you know, what the professor says about wanting to destroy the room, to, to, to move a little bit, uh, forward in the film, um, you know, you can see Tarkovsky kind of playing with that possibility because the writer and the professor kind of represent the two different ways of responding to the, to the room. And so I think, you know, certainly Tarkovsky would be playing with those with those ideas in, in his mind. Of course, Stalker represents a third way to respond to the room. So he's got this really interesting ranges of possibilities, which, you know, as, an, as a filmmaker, he loves to offer multiple possibilities. That's one of the really cool things about this film right there's a lot of different angles you can take on what's going on right no that's exactly right and i don't know enough about him other than i read enough about him to feel like well the writer sure seems like like a version of him so i i just made the assumption well maybe they're all aspects of 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 him or maybe they're all aspects of all of us to a certain Mm -hmm. degree you know like um, so then we get the trip into the zone when they're driving in this Jeep through the town, which uh, I will say, if there was a moment when I felt confused in this movie, it was during that. Spatially, it's baffling. I don't understand. It seems like they're just driving in a circle in this tiny little area, and then all of a sudden they're onto the tracks, which is a great preparation for the zone, <laughs> because the zone, you end up feeling like it's not so weird that they're doing what they're doing, because, man, when they're driving around that the town near the zone i i just can't make sense of i tried to map it out in my head and it's like where are they what are they doing it's great i, I find that that stuff really interesting it was frustrating when i first saw it and now i think well that's really interesting well you know what i what i like about it is in a, in a film that tells you it's going to be very slow you actually have a kind of a chase scene mm-hmm. even if they can't figure out who's chasing who or where they're going and it also suggests that one of the uh, mantras that stalker says later in the zone which is the straight path is not the shortest uh it, you're kind of being prepared for that yes <laughs> and, and and the other thing is really weird about it um or, or or not weird but surprising about it and this happens in the zone as well is the degree to which stalker expects professor and writer to do things like you go in there and you do that did you bring the gas can mm-hmm. you know and and when they're in the zone he always has them walking ahead so it's i, I it's really i think you could think about that eight to ten minutes whatever it is as as a kind of prelude to the way the action's going to proceed in in the zone as well plus you have the added danger they're being shot at and yes. you know and and he throws those uh those those bolt or those nuts ahead of him because he says that the zone is full of traps and they're they're death traps so you got to watch out so then we get one of the great sequences in this whole movie which is the the when they're on the gas rail car and the transition into the zone mm-hmm. um and and one of the it's a very long scene and one of the best parts about it is the sound yeah. right because you start with the actual real world diegetic sound of the rail car click clack click clack and and i i was listening to a thing where they were talking about the 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 guy who does the score for this movie mm-hmm. and and what what he does there is he will take a natural sound and then he will create an electronic sound to echo it and then and slowly pull that up 
and pull down the natural sound. So by the time you get to the zone, you're only listening to these electronic sounds, which grew out of the natural sound. And it happened so slowly that at first I was like, is there something wrong with the rail that it's starting to like sound like it, it, it doesn't sound right. And by the time you get to the end, nothing sounds like it should anymore. It's so cool. And you get then color all of the sudden. Uh, Tarkovsky loves that. He loves that contrast between uh, either black and white, or you're right. In this case, it's really sepia. uh, Almost like you're looking at an old photograph, right? Um, Yeah. And then, and then all of a sudden you get this, this burst of color. He, he does that in almost not, well, he does that in many of his films on most notably in in Andre Rublev. And what I, what I love when they get there is Stalker says, here we are home at last. It's the quietest place on earth. It's so beautiful. There's no one here. Men can't follow it up. And so that's like, you know, once you get there and, and Stalker gives you this kind of, um, this kind of announcement of the theme. And it, it, it echoes T.S. Eliot in Four Quartets, right? You know, you, you, come to, you come home and know the place for the first time. And then you have that long scene of Stalker just lying on the ground, just kind of embracing it, getting back in touch with it. And, and that kind of sets up the, the conflict that's going to emerge between stalker and professor and writer in terms of how they regard the zone itself as well as the room. Now, when I watched this and I saw us move from sepia to color, you know, my, my like dumb movie brain was like wizard of Oz, right? Like, like that's the, and, and, and there are so many yeah. parallels, like, like uh, because they're, and we think about the wizard of Oz for one thing, it's interesting. You talk about home, right? Cause it's an inversion of home in the wizard of Oz. There's no mm-hmm. place like home, which mm-hmm. is on the outside, but now home is on the inside there. There are these characters in both stories who are seeking this thing, which is going to fulfill their, desires or the things that they most want whether it's a heart or a brain or you know mm-hmm. or courage or for, in these cases instead it's asking well do we even know what we want um you know like in in both movies you have the characters fall asleep at some point in the mm-hmm. middle um and then and you also in both movies see echoes between the two worlds things mm-hmm. that you saw in one you see in the other is this is this intent or is this kind of just monomyth? Like, well, stories are stories and and this is a basic story. <laughs> That's a good question. And I have no idea whether Tarkovsky saw Wizard of Oz or, or, or not. Um, I, 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 I'm going to go for the monomyth <laughs> interpretation, Sam. I think there's, I think there's something um, fundamental about this wish for some kind of a paradise, some kind of an ideal place. And, the visual representation of it as this kind of beautiful, dominant, uh, dominated by green uh, color, that just seems to me to be, uh, yeah, it's it's an archetype, if you will. So uh, let's talk about the zone because this is this is the other this is the fourth major character throughout most of this movie, and it's even shot like a character. We get. Yes what appears to be POV shots from the zones point of view, um, because it feels like you're in a uh, subjective shot, but all three characters are on screen. So, um, so I'm curious what you think the zone represents because it's this world that seems, or at least we're told does not obey our, the laws we expect. Um, At the same time, it's rules seem unclear and arbitrary. And I also wonder like, how much of what stalker tells us is real or how much is ritual and superstition? Because in the book, 
when he throws the 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 nuts with the the ribbon on them yeah. there are moments where it's like they hit these weird gravitational things mm-hmm. and it's like they know it so this takes that idea but we never see the the nut do the thing that's like that we're it's supposed to be warning us against they always just throw it and follow it you and i could go out into a field and do this as well like so so there it, it the what i love is because of the pace of this movie and because of the characters with him you start by trusting stalker and then eventually you start to wonder like did we really have to do this or is this um is this uh, like again a ritual and superstition which makes me when i say those words it makes me think about how religion is sometimes viewed, right? Is this just a religion and a superstition? Is this just ritual and superstition, or is this actually real? And then the movie sometimes shows us things where we're, where that make us step back and say, "Well, I can't explain that." So, what are your thoughts on the zone? Well, I mean, the, the the film itself offers you these multiple perspectives on the zone, right? Because um, at one point, Stalker says it demands respect; otherwise, it will punish you. So there's a sense in which the zone, in, from that point of view, the zone seems to have a uh, an objective identity of some sort. But then later on, he says, uh, as soon as humans appear in the zone, things change. And he says, we construct it with the state of our mind. Everything that happens here depends on us. So so there, the zone is more like it's it's almost a projection of human consciousness. And I think about... You know, when Stalker tells the professor not to go back for the for the rucksack, right, because he'll, he'll get lost. And then it turns out that somehow the professor has found another path forward. And so when when uh, Stalker and, and the writer come out of the tunnel, there's there's the professor sitting there. Um, and, and even Stalker doesn't fully understand how he got there. So it's almost as though Stalker Stalker has an understanding of the zone, but it doesn't appear that anybody can have a completely authoritative or or a completely consistent version of the zone. So that's where I think the zone zone operates as a kind of commentary on on human hope and aspiration. So on the one hand, and and I see this played out in other other times in the film as well, especially in terms of Porcupine's encounter with, with the room. So on the one on the one hand, you have this idea that there is this this kind of objective reality, um, in the same way that we want to believe in heaven or God, uh, and there's this objective reality, and it operates according to certain principles, and it wants to do you good uh, as long as you respect it. Or is it that we have these constructions that we make with our minds, and we project what we wish on, onto this reality, and it's it doesn't necessarily exist objectively, but it's but it's inside our, our mind, which is um, how the writer uh, accounts for Porcupine's um, despair, because Porcupine has realized that things like conscience and soul searching are all invented by the mind. Mm-hmm. So I so I so I think Tarkovsky is doing both things with the zone, both the idea, both the idea that the zone is the object of faith, it's real. It's beneficent as long as you obey it. So, or no, the zone is just this place where people go into it and they kind of end up constructing it according to their own desires and needs. Right. Well, and it's interesting when, when the writer uh, makes his journey away and starts to walk towards the room. And then there is a voice that we hear and he and all the characters seem to yeah. hear, but none of them are like, 
well, did we hear that? What was mm-hmm. that? Even, I mean, and even Stalker is, he seems troubled by the voice when it seems like, well, yeah, wouldn't that, wouldn't you, ex- I mean, he's both explaining, well, the zone, the zone gave you a warning, but when, when we see his first reaction to hearing it, he's a little bit like, well, I haven't experienced that before. I'm not sure what to make of that. And he even says to the professor, did you, were you the one who said that mm-hmm. he's trying to explain it away at the same time, which I, I find interesting because it, it does strike me as like, um, there's something that, that the uh, the writer says really early in the movie when he's talking to the woman about like comparing the middle ages to the modern world and how like in the medieval world, there was this openness to, you know, that, that every house had its own spirit and its own gods and all these things. And like how now we have stripped that away. And I feel like in the zone, there is, uh, it feels like a haunted place in a, in a different kind of way. Like it's a remnant of a world mm-hmm. where those things are possible. Um, and I, I, I found that, I find that really, uh, really interesting. I also was wondering, like, as we start to see people veer off of Stalker's, uh, what he's saying, like, are we going to, are we, is this a story where we lose characters along the way? Like, is only one person going to make it to the, like a Willy Wonka kind of story where <laughs> you start with the group? Cause it's when, when the professor goes back and he's gone, I was still in the mode where I'm like, okay, I'm trusting everything the stalker says. I'm like, well, I guess that guy's out of the story now. (laughs) And then when they walk out and he's there, my sense was like, stalker, are you just making all of this up? Mm -hmm. Because it sort of felt like they just went on this little journey because he told them to go through the dry tunnel. And it's like, but did we need to do that at all? And, and, and at that point I was both baffled and in love with this movie. Cause I was like, you're asking all the questions now. And I really, really was into that. Well, I think, it, I, I think it's necessary that, um, that stalker not be seen as an infallible guide. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, stalker is a, a person who is, um, doing the best he can with the knowledge that he has, but it's not like, he's got the golden key that explains everything. And I think that Tarkovsky wants, he, he, wa- he wants to be um, faithful to certain realities. And that is, you know, we all look for guides in this life, but we, we're not going to find the perfect guide, especially in the spiritual life. Uh, I apologize for asking questions that start with, what do you make of, but what do you make of stalkers <laughs> like sepia tone dream and the introduction of, I think that's the first time we see the dog. Maybe yeah, we see it, it before then. Yeah. Yeah. You know the, the the dog is well. First of all, from a um, from a production point of view, the dog is an accident. The dog just shows up uh, when they, when they're making the film, and uh, and th- this is a Russian film crew in Estonia, so they they couldn't communicate with the dog because the dog only understood Estonian. So they actually had the dog's owner with them, and they said the dog was really smart, and anything the owner would tell him to do, the dog the dog would do. Um, so yeah, so first of all, the dog is incorporated in the film because he showed up. Uh, secondly, the dog is an objective correlative. So um, if you have any doubt at the end of the film whether any of this really happened, uh, well, Stalker comes back with the dog. Uh, you don't know how they get back. I love I love the fact that, that Tarkovsky doesn't show you how they get back. That's just brilliant. But they get back with with the dog. I mean, and I, and I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure that the. I'm not sure that the dog is um, uh, is like a kind of a guardian spirit or whatever, but or some manifestation of of the zone. It's just not clear. And I so as I, I don't have any uh, any 
good interpretation of the dog, except whenever the dog shows up, it seems to be a good sign. Mm-hmm. The, dog, the dog seems to be some indication of, of beneficence, uh, wherever that's coming from. Yeah. And it's interesting because, because the first time it's a German shepherd, I think, and the first time you see it, that type of dog can feel threatening, but then mm-hmm. it's, but then you realize it's not. And, yes. uh, yes. And the fact that it becomes part of stalker's family at the end, you know, there's something, uh, yeah, there, 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 there's something that I like about that, that they, cause they take the dog with them, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, it, and, it, and it's funny. It has a, it has a relationship with the professor as well. And when the professor is standing kind of in that alcove place and the dog is kind of sitting there, um, I think the only character, I can't remember if the, I can't remember whether the dog approaches the writer or not. That's, yeah. that's what I can't recall. Okay. Another baffling thing that happens in this is seemingly at, and it's not exactly a random point, but all of a sudden on screen, it says stalker part two, part two. Yeah. Uh, what is that about? <laughs> yeah, I was I, I I was trying to figure that out too because I thought, well, that's you know, first of all, that's kind of a um, that's kind of a, a, a two thousand and one, right? Yes. Probably a split. Yeah. Well, all, all, all I can say is that after part two, Stalker prays. Right? Mm-hmm. He says, "May everything come true. May they believe. Above all, may they believe in themselves and become like children. You know, soft and pliable." Uh, and he quotes an entire section of the Tao Te Ching that talks about, you know, the importance of being soft and pliant like a newborn as opposed to be, being hard uh, like an adult when he dies. So I think in a way, part two is, first of all, it's the, it's the full transition into the zone. But it's also, I think, Tarkovsky's announcement that this is a spiritual journey. Um, this may be a science fiction film, but I have some very... Uh, significant uh, spiritual themes in mind, and he's kind of uh, he's kind of signaling that to us. Yeah, that's exactly what I had because I noticed right after that. So we get that, that that's chapter seventy six of the Tao. Yeah, and then he also reads from Revelation or yeah. reads recites from Revelation six about the sixth seal, mm-hmm. and then the road to, the story of the road to Emmaus, Emmaus yeah. and these two travelers and their yeah. lack of faith potentially, and it's like. He, and, and then and then he also says the thing about music too there that that music mm-hmm. has this um sort of strange uh cast over us right this or this strange ability to to reach parts of us that maybe intellectual mm-hmm. uh you know or even even other artistic things don't and all of that is like it's like all of a sudden the the uh stalker kind of opens up in a different way than he had before at that point and even that comment on music you know i um, you were saying earlier how the soundtrack works. I mean, one reason I think for watching this film again is to listen to it again. And I know that when I watch a film, I don't listen very well. I always end up at the end saying, well, gee, I don't really recall what the soundtrack was doing unless it's really obvious. So I think that comment about music is, uh, in a sense, it's kind of self-referential, talking a little bit about how, how the music functions in this film as well. And, and even the sound. I mean, this movie has some of the most amazing sounds of people walking over wet rocks. Yes. <laughs> you know, like, and I, I was walking home yesterday and it was wet out and I was walking by the railroad track where there's, and I realized like, oh, I sound like the movie Stalker right now. It's It was really <laughs> cool. Um, and the other thing that happens in part two is we move from e- exterior to interiors. Mm-hmm. More. Now we're starting to, as we start to really approach the room, so we go through the meat grinder, which is another one of those things, which is 
built up in all these ways to be, well, this is the most harrowing part of the journey. And then it's sort of like they walk through a wet pipe. Like it's like, it's like nothing happens, but everything about that feels like the possibility of something happening, um, you know, could be there. And then we get the, the writer going on a little too far ahead. And all of a sudden, Right mm-hmm. after the sort of meat grinder uh, shows itself to be nothing, we get that sand dune room. And that's another one of those moments where I'm like, I, I don't know what to make of this. Yes. I guess this, maybe this is magic. Like that room doesn't make sense. And you get that bird that flies in and disappears. It disappears. Yes. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, okay, <laughs> maybe because the movie has been building to you questioning, is any of this real? And then you have that moment and you're like, I guess it must be. Or something, there's something here that that actually doesn't line up. Maybe what Stalker's saying is true. The way he plays with your head in this movie is great with that stuff. Um, then we're then we get to kind of the anteroom before the threshold, and we have the telephone ring. And and I love just watching their reaction to the phone ringing because uh, it's it's like this that's it's this sort of intrusion of the broader world into this world and this thing that this remnant of what had been here in the past, all of the sudden still showing that connection. And and that's, and then and the fact that it's a wrong number is the, the call, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so then we get to the threshold and here's, mm-hmm. you know, if this movie wasn't already great and interesting, the threshold is, is a, mm-hmm. a very fascinating scene because here we get the sort of more of the resolution of thinking about porcupine's story Mm-hmm. Um, as the writer uh, talks about, we get the the poem from Porcupine's brother, which was written by Tarkovsky's father, right? That's right. That, his father yeah. was a poet. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then there's all these questions about, you know, do we, uh, are any of them even going to enter the room? I mean, they've gone on this whole journey, and then there's now these questions that have been lingering about what are our desires and. Do, do we actually want that? Or are we afraid to learn what, what we most deeply desire? Here's where also where we learn about the professor's plan to blow the room up. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of with this sense that like, if this thing is real, yeah, we will weaponize it. Yes. <laughs> Which also feels like a 2001 thing, you know, like that there is this sense of like mm-hmm. technology quickly becomes a tool for a weapon and a tool for dominance. And the professor has a little bit of that in him sure. as he's thinking about it. Yeah, right. Exactly. You know, if the wrong person gets a hold of the room, who knows what, who knows what's going to happen. Oh, yeah. Um, and, uh, and then we get this shot, uh, you know, once they all decide he disarms the bomb and they all are sitting there and they decide not to go in, we get this, the last great shot in the zone is this pullback. And we realize our point of view is pulling back into the room. Mm-hmm. And so, and then we get the rain coming down and we yeah, see yeah. the, the, like, is it part of the bomb? And then this, the fish comes up and I can't tell if this, like whatever is overtaking the water, whatever the Brown is, that's overtaking mm. the water. I couldn't tell if that was from the bomb or if that's just other stuff floating in the water. Yeah. I think, it, uh, yeah, it looks like an oil slick or something. And I thought yeah. Tarkasi just liked the kind of composition of it. It looks great. Yeah. yeah. And then we get this cut to we're back in the bar. And like you said, we don't know how they get back. Um, but then, and it feels like that could be the end of the movie, but then we get like three other endings to this movie. Right. Right. Well, you know, and one of, one of the key endings is we have to come back to the conflict with his wife. 
Yep. Because you know the movie starts with with uh, with her um, angry angry at him for going back into the zone. It also has the moment in the kitchen where the light bulb burns out, which we which gets repeated again in the, in the zone as well. The light bulb uh, bursting. But that's a really important um, monologue, and I think it's also a Tarkovskian homage to Bergman's uh, Winter Light because it's a uh, fourth wall. She breaks the fourth wall and talks directly to the audience, and Bergman did that in the early 60s. Um, and, and what's important about that is not only does it kind of resolve or, or maybe not resolve, but at least helps you understand their relationship where she says, you know, um, she would she embraces the bittersweet happiness of living with him rather than an uneventful life. And she says life would be worse without sorrow because then there'd be no happiness, no hope. But the key thing is she identifies him as one of God's fools. Mm -hmm. uh, and Tarkovsky says in his own comment on the film, he says that Stalker is like Don Quixote uh, or Prince Mishkin. Uh, Dostoevsky is the idiot. Um, he's one of those people who, in a sense, the world will always kind of beat down because they are idealists. Um, but it's their idealism that he is particularly uh, in interested in. He, he talks about the strength of the weak man who believes in his dependence on the spiritual force that gave him worth. He says to me, he says those who, who behave like this, um, their impractical behavior is a sign of a lofty spirituality and selflessness. So she helps kind of explicate exactly who it is a stalker stalker's identity because stalker is in a kind of despair right so they don't believe in anything their capacity for truth is atrophied no one believes um and so that's that's kind of the role that he plays uh he you know he talks about himself as somebody who who has no hope um and he brings the other hopeless to the room in order to give them hope as well yeah, no, the, the scene before her monologue when they're in the conversation is one of my favorites. And then when she says, well, take me, I'll go with you. And he says, no, what if it wouldn't work for you either? Mm -hmm. And he has this he has this fear of like, well, now anyone that I bring like like is it, are, are we all faithless? Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that that was such that's the moment when this movie, if I was unsure about where, what this was about, I got to that part and I was like, actually, this is made for me to think about. And I, I, I really loved that. And then we get the final shot of monkey again in color yes, uh, at the table. Yeah. Cause she is a, a, uh, uh, being of the zone to a certain, to a different degree than others. So she appears mm -hmm. in color more than the, even outside world. And we see her sort of telekinetically moving these glasses across the table, even before the train comes. Um, and again, this is one of those things that points you to say, you know, maybe this was all real. Maybe there is something else in the world than what we want to admit or what we see. Right. And you have, you know, monkey being labeled, you know, a mutant and, you know, a deficient, defective because she's a child of his own. Uh, and again, it's it's this idea that those things that the world despises may be the things that God blesses. And so, yes, you have this, you know, he plays with the idea, is it the train or her? But it's quite clear that it's that it's her. And yeah. what I love about that is it is the simplest of special effects. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet it's just so incredibly effective. Yes. So we, we are running out of time. Uh, do you have anything else you want to you want to touch well, on? Just two, two quick things I want to I want to mention, Sam. One is that we didn't talk at all about the production of this film. This is the third time that Tarkovsky filmed it. His it, the, the first time he started, the, the site was disrupted by an earthquake. 
he started again, he shot for a year, brought the film back to be developed, and it was missed, it was not developed properly, it was completely ruined. So this is actually the third time that he shot this film. And the way he got it financed was to say it was actually gonna be a two-part film. So it's, somehow he managed to pull that off. The other thing to say is that, you know, they shoot in this abandoned factory in, um, in Estonia, and four of the people in this, in this film, including Tartakovsky himself, all die of cancer within the next seven or eight years. And the suspicion is pretty clear that it was the result of this particular location. So um, there's, a, there's a kind of sadness to the idea that he died for his art, but maybe he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The last thing I'll say, I, I sometimes like to talk about movie pairings, things I'd like to watch as a double feature. I was thinking about, I mean, the obvious ones, like you could do 2001, you could do The Wizard of Oz. To me, the the movie that I think pairs really greatly with this, because it touches on this theme of faith and lack of faith, um, is uh, Dreyer's Ordet. I think those, this and that are really good movies. That, that final speech by Stalker when he's talking about like a, a lack of faith. And that also has a holy fool character in it as well. I love the movie Ordet. And I feel like these two movies are, they're kindred spirit movies. I, I can't top that, Sam. That's a great recommendation. I fully agree. All right. So what do you have for us for next week, Barrett? Well, um, I want to continue with the sight and sound uh, top 10 of films we haven't seen. And since one of those films is another Russian film, it was number 10 on that list, I want to do Jigas uh, Vertov's uh, Man with a Movie Camera, a uh, silent film from 1929, and for some people, the greatest documentary of all time. Oh, I'm sorry. I've always wanted to watch this and I haven't. And as a contrast to this movie, that is a very short movie. I think it's like 60 minutes. Yeah, very long. short yes. and, uh, and and montage, which is not something that uh, Tarkovsky appreciated. Right. Oh, fantastic. I'm so excited for that. Barrett, thank you so much for, for sharing. I won't even say recommending for sharing this movie that you love. Um, this is one of the best things I've ever seen. And I'm going to keep <laughs> thinking about it for the rest of my life. Uh, and it hit me like a ton of bricks, and I I absolutely loved it. So I say your daughter is wrong. This is not a boring movie. This is a great movie. So thank you for recommending this, and thank you for having the conversation. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about Man with a Movie Camera in the Video Store. 